HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi there, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network, and I will take you on an interesting journey for the next half hour of the colonial days and some of the forgotten drinks of the colonial days. Well, if I had mentioned at the top of the show, flips, switchels, posset, and rattleskulls, you might think I'd be talking about some complicated gymnastic feats, but I'm sure, as many of you know, they are names of alcoholic drinks from the early colonial days, which were the true beginnings of this cocktail craze that we find ourselves in once again. And my first guest today will shed some light on these and other drinks of those early days and kind of set the scene of, of what it was like to be... Um, a drinker in the colonial days, well, maybe to be not a, not to be a drinker in the colonial days. Corinne Hirsch is a writer and associate editor for Convene Magazine and former food writer for the Vermont newspaper Seven Days. Her work appears in several publications, regional publications, as well as Serious Eats. And her recent book from the History Press is called Forgotten Drinks of Colonial New England. In it, the author takes us, as she says, on a rump through colonial drinks, their origins, and how they're made. In fact, it seems that European settlers, as she says in her book, practically swam in a sea of booze from breakfast till bedtime. Welcome, Corinne. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for, for joining me. And in, is it true, I mean, they really, the early settlers really drank from breakfast till midnight? It's it's mostly true. Um, having cider or beer with breakfast was a fairly common practice back in the uh, 16- and 1700s, and um, no less than John Adams used to, to stay with a tankard of hard cider with his breakfast, and students at Harvard University um, 
a few hundred years ago, would start their day with beer. There was a brewery at the university, and it was just it was just common practice. It was part of the custom, and it was a custom that had carried over from Europe when people came over here. Well, and you say it carried over from Europe because we know that in England um, there was a similar reason that so much alcohol was being drunk, and that was the condition of the water. And in England, they they drank beer. Was it mostly beer? They drink beer and ale from you know, like with every meal. Yeah, beer and ale were very common to the culture, especially urban culture. I think you found more hard cider in the country, um, but beer workers would be paid in beer, and of course there was a mistrust of water in some quarters. Of course, people were still drinking water; they had to, but they didn't really understand the mechanisms by which the water they were drinking was making them sick. And fermented beverages um, did not make them sick huh. because uh, bacteria couldn't live in the beverages, so uh, people drank. Uh, Fermented beverages as part of their day-to-day. Right. Um, but when, they, when the settlers first came to, um, the first colonial settlers arrived, uh, they, weren't, they weren't making beer. What were they drinking? Um, they learned to make beer fairly quickly. I think hops were coming over within 10 years of, of Plymouth being founded. But uh, they, beer was brought over on some of the ships, especially the Mayflower. Famously, the Mayflower had a store of beer. Um, I've seen reports that uh, they, well, the, first of all, the water in the New World was much better than what they'd been used to. So people drank a lot more water here. But there was corn liquor that um, some folks learned to make from local Native American tribes. And, and once they had orchards up and running, they were drinking hard cider. But I think beer was part of the culture pretty early on. I mean, it was pretty terrible beer because uh, there wasn't really the mechanism to do malting in the way that people had been used to, and brewing equipment was scarce. But people mounted uh, efforts at brewing pretty rapidly. Hmm. And, of course, the longer they were here, the worse the water conditions became, right? It, yes. I think hmm. the same sanitation practices carried people uh, carried over here, and until those were understood... They were starting to pollute their water sources pretty rapidly as well. So, mm. uh, well, where it, the next question is, you know, what? Well, first of all, why did they drink? And obviously, it was water. I mean, because of the water condition. Mm-hmm. And we're talking not just not just adults. This is children and and um, young people mm-hmm. alike, right? Yes. Yeah, well, children, as hard cider started to uh, become more of the culture, especially in New England, there was a second pressing of the apples made a lower alcohol uh, cider called Cider Kin, and and children, that was was intended for children. Mm -hmm. So they were imbibing as well. And some travelers to the colony in the 1700s would note that uh, children were drinking here and sometimes even drinking hard spirits. Um, But, uh, yeah, so they were... I, I don't think they were soused all the time, but I think that low-alcohol beer and cider were part of their diets. And and ha- and making hard cider, it wasn't just about being drunk, of course. And, and alcohol was beer and cider, especially, were seen to give nutrition, offer nutrition, right. um, and calories, of course, and to supplant the diet. So they were they were part of the table, and uh, not necessarily something that you know. I'm sure alcohol eased the fairly harsh conditions that a lot of people were enduring at the time especially rum, once rum came along. Rum numbs you a lot quicker than than beer or cider. But, um, you know, there are a lot of different reasons that that alcohol was so entwined with the culture. Right. That was something that I I wondered about. You know, was it it partly conditional that, you know, that they... They were missing the homeland, and it was, you know, who wants to go chop more trees and move more stones, right? <laughs> so it's just yeah. have a tankard it's of ale. <laughs> it's 
also a hard cider is a manner of preserving apples. When you have just a tremendous amount of apples in the fall, families would put up barrels of cider for the winter uh, as a way, of, a way of preserving their harvest mm-hmm. and still sort of accessing the nu- nutrition from from the harvest throughout the winter when, of course, nothing was growing. Right. Well, and when they got here, they did find a lot of good um, natural resources for, mm-hmm. for making alcoholic beverages like berry what about you know, like berry well you said hops berries um berries, yeah. and fruit and they're pretty creative in their uses of uh fruit and herbs to make wine dandelion wine of course and um different kinds of fruit wines and and of course they were trying to make grape wines fairly uh, early on jamestown mounted a lot of different efforts at, at having a successful wine trade there. When people came here, they saw wild grapes growing everywhere, but those were not the grapes that made the kinds of wines that... Um, that you would want to drink. That <laughs> you'd want to drink. And so different stock was brought over, but it was just always kind of a failing experiment up and down the coast to make grape wine. So, of course, there were fruit wines, and, and beer and cider were much more American drinks. And some of the beer was... It didn't have a great reputation because people were using all kinds of sugars to... To, for malting, they were using, um, you know, if grain wasn't growing properly, they'd, of course, use uh, maple syrup and pumpkins and uh, instead of hops, sometimes spruce tips to add bitterness to the beer. So there was a lot of different uh, <laughs> ingredients in well, American and, beer. And what is so interesting, I always say everything comes full circle, mm-hmm. it's very popular to add some pumpkin spice flavor to, uh, or pumpkin flavor to the Oktoberfest beers, and they have, you know, pumpkin ales and and spruce tips oh my goodness spruce, spruce tips are are having a renaissance of their own in terms of of drinks and and, and i don't know about spruce beers so much but um certainly in in distilling other drinks you know clear drinks but you know there was an article just the other day uh somewhere some someplace some food um blog and it was about how America's drinking habits have increased dramatically over the past, oh, I don't know what the timeline was, maybe 25 years. And um, and I, I took a look at it, knowing we were going to be talking about this. And, and today's um, amount of daily or annual imbibing still comes nowhere close to what was happening around the time of the Revolutionary War. Can you just give us an idea about how much people were actually drinking at that time? Sure. Uh, well, I've seen uh, different figures, and I don't think the record-keeping was as good before the war as it was after the war, because there are a lot of figures around about how much people were drinking in the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, I think by 1830, it was seven gallons of pure alcohol for every adult in America, which is just a, a massive amount. Um, I, around 1770, uh, I, I'd say I've, I, I've gone with the figure of uh, th- uh, roughly between three and four gallons of distilled spirits per year. Um, and I've seen a figure of like the equivalent of three pints of rum per week, basically a few shots a day for for every uh, adult and probably adult male over the age of 15, because I don't know that women were really being counted in that way. Mm. Um, but it was just, uh, it was a lot, but it, it certainly began to reach a crescendo after the war was over. That's when an alcohol consumption as robust as it was before the war began, it 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 just reached a peak in the decades after the war, mm. and of course that's when temperance 
started to swirl and people started railing against alcohol. Um, but, it, you know, there were uh, seven shots a day is, is uh, the figure that I went with in my book, which I think sounds a little excessive, but um, I think in some corners you would find that. If people were drinking from morning until evening and having Levenses and having alcohol with lunch and then alcohol in the late afternoon and, of course, in the evening, um, that's not such a far, right. uh, not so far-fetched. Right, and to call that, a, you know, a an average per capita. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that means you know the the extremes are are <laughs> quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, well, so we talk a lot about um, we talked a lot about about brand about ale and and beer, and then you said wine. Of course, was n- the grapes weren't so good. Mm-hmm. Um, what what then became as as the years went on and um, they got a little more sophisticated in their importation and what became some of the drinks of choice. Um, some drinks of choice, well, the drink of choice, I'd say, for uh, the colonies was Flip, well, a more New England drink, which was definitely the, the proto-cocktail of its day, and it varied from tavern to tavern, and something I think you'd mostly drink in taverns, not what you'd make at home, maybe if you were having a party, you might make it, or have a, you know, a barn raising or a wedding, you might make some Flip, but it was essentially a blend of warm beer, uh, eggs and cream, and spices and rum, and uh, some, often this was heated up. It, it gained its name from flip dog, which was the poker that you take from a fire. You take a hot poker from a fire and plunge it into the pitcher of this drink, and it makes it frothy and it gives it this uh, charred flavor. And so that was quintessentially American drink. It had its roots in England, but. Um, some taverns became known for their flip. Mm-hmm. You see their, their ledgers at the time of flip might be more expensive than a night's bedding down in the end upstairs or in the back because the flip was so, uh, you know, so crafted and, and dear. So I, when I describe this to people during tastings and readings, they go, oh, that sounds disgusting. But once people try flip, it's a really delicious drink. It's very smooth and creamy and distinctive. Right. And, um, and so there are other combinations of beer and rum, <laughs> namely there's rattle skull, which is rum combined with dark beer, um, and also uh, hard cider and rum, stone fence or stone wall, depending on where you find it referenced, was a blend of uh, hard cider and rum that was famously uh, loved, beloved by Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, and they were supposedly drinking them the night before they went to Fort Ticonderoga and took that fort. They were drinking them in a pub in, or a tavern in Vermont. So um, rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. Um, and then there are a few non-alcoholic drinks around as well, and especially uh, there are hang drinks called Switchel, which was a blend of vinegar and maple syrup, water, spices, and, and ginger that uh, was uh, drunk by hayers in Vermont when it was hot and they were out in the field, and shrub, which was uh, also a blend of vinegar, fruit, and sugar that you could dilute and drink. And um, it's just a host of very simple drinks that don't sound great on the surface, but once you make them at home, they're actually rather elegant mm-hmm. in their simplicity. Well, and as I say, you know, again, everything, you know, comes full circle. Here we are mm-hmm. enjoying, I mean, it seems like the younger generations have rediscovered cocktails and and the cocktail craze is has just taken off. And I love that um, a lot of bartenders are being very innovative and, and coming up with their own mixes and own and own drinks, all of them having some kind of roots in some of these early, well, punches, but, you know, early, early roots of these, oh, of these drinks. Yeah. 
Yeah. And of course, mead, um, um, mead was mentioned frequently too. I mean, everyone's Mm -hmm. been drinking mead since antiquity. I mean, it, Mm-hmm. You know, who knew? You know, take a little honey and it would ferment. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess I left out punch, but punch was another quintessential Fine. drink of the day and, and something that everyone would drink from the same bowl and, and kind of this sort of liquid mirror of the democratic um, process that was gaining foothold at that time. And right. Well, in these fancier drinks, I mean, certainly the beer and the ale, you know, they would they would have in their homes and they would drink. But some of these mixes, other drinks, where where would they be consumed traditionally? In in the tavern, well, they were originally called ordinaries in the 1600s. They essentially the colonial form of a public house or a tavern. Uh, there was one, and pretty much at least one in every settlement in New England. Sometimes they were mandated when new settlements. Uh, Rose in Connecticut and Massachusetts because they were centers of community life and, and mostly centers of male community life because women were not often allowed in the tavern unless they were had a separate room where they could gather. But um, these are where a lot of these drinks were uh, imbibed. You'd find at home hard cider and beer certainly, but in, in the tavern is where flips would be blended by the tavern uh, keeper and rattle skulls and syllabub and all that right um you have some wonderful photos of early taverns that are now museums in your book and uh, and there are i mean people just travel around there are some wonderful uh taverns museums still mm-hmm. in existence today and it kind of gives us gives you a little insight they weren't exactly comfortable places but you know oh. but the, they had a chair they had a fireplace you know <laughs> a yeah place they had benches they're right. you know huge Hearth. Um, they're they're interesting to look at, especially the Buckman Tavern in, in Lexington, Mass. It's um, it's great to visit that. It gives you a real sense of what it was like. The low ceilings and the bar was often just sort of a, a closet in the corner where you could pull down the bars at the end of the, at the end of the night and. Um, yeah. They had to. They had to protect it that heavily, right? They had to have bars. Sometimes I don't think all of them had those bars, but uh, when you see them, they're very stark looking. <laughs> right. uh, and then there was whiskey. Mm-hmm. There's whiskey. I don't touch on whiskey too much in my book because it came. I had to be very strict about when I ended. And whiskey was definitely something that rose during the Revolutionary War. It was fundamentally domestic drink made from domestic grain and really uh, became popular during the war and after the war. Um, but the whiskey it rose in Pennsylvania and, and that, that area down, moving south from there. And, um, of course, whiskey provided one of the first challenges of George Washington's presidency when he had to put down the Whiskey Rebellion around in Pennsylvania um, when the government was taxing whiskey that was made there. Um, but I, yeah, I don't, uh, I heard a little bit about it in the book, but right. there are some great books about whiskey there. Right. Well, you know, what I found interesting was um, what you wrote about Madeira mm-hmm. and um, how one of the early importers was a young man named John Hancock. Yes, <laughs> it was, and uh, and Madeira was, was uh, perhaps imbibed more by people of a certain class, of certain wealth. You'd find it in more urban areas, notably um, Philadelphia and Boston, and was beloved by many of the founding fathers who wrote uh, poetic things about Madeira. But, of course, John Hancock uh, provided uh, one of the crises leading up to the war. He was uh, smuggling in Madeira. Or I don't know if he... Madeira was... was Unique in that it avoided some of the British duties uh, because it came from a non-European place, the island of Madeira. So it was seen as a democratic drink uh, in the colonies. And mm-hmm. I, 
John Hancock was bringing it in. He had a ship that um, I think some British officials boarded and found only a quarter full of Madeira and assumed that he had taken off whatever else was on there to avoid um, any kind of attention or taxes, and, it, and the, the ship was was grabbed by the authorities, and it provided this crisis that helped foment uh, people's discontent with the crown. <laughs> Once again. <laughs> and now yeah. you refer to the, um, the amounts of, of Madeira as a pipe. Can you explain what a pipe, a pipe of Madeira would be? Um, well, uh, a pipe of Madeira, it's a, I think Madeira was measured, oh, it, was, it was shipped in pipes, and, and you're catching me off guard because oh, I don't sorry. remember the <laughs> exact amount of a pipe. Yeah. Yeah. But, it would, but it would, sort of like an amphora, it would be yeah. you know, a, a big jug, a large jug, I would imagine. Yeah, I, I think people gathered um, with, with a large amount of Madeira and had these things called Madeira parties, and, um, and to, to have that they needed a, a fair amount, and so there were all these kind of paraphernalia around Madeira that you'd see arranged on a table. There's some great plates of just kind of, kind of glasses and, and urns that people drank it out of. It seemed to have a whole ritual attached to it. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you so much with, for sharing your information on the background of, of our forefathers, thinking mm-hmm. they were Puritans and pilgrims. Well, pilgrims they were, but, you know, but Puritans. And, in fact, they were kind of sloshing around the, uh, the colonies and trying to, trying to make it livable. And uh, I guess that was okay. <laughs> Again, the name of Corinne's book is Forgotten Drinks of Colonial New England, From Flips and Rattleskulls to Switchel and Spruce Beer. Corinne, thank you so much. And stay tuned because we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll find what ancient, what ancient, what colonial drink has been having a little renaissance of its own today. Stay tuned. You are listening to Flotation Device by Eric Maltz. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. We're thrilled to announce a special event, the Silver Snail, 25 Years of Slow Food. This event is hosted by Slow Food USA, Heritage Radio Network, and Roberta's Pizza. It's been 25 years since Carlo Petrini and a group of activists launched a peaceful revolution to defend regional traditions, good food, gastronomic pleasure, and the slow pace of life. The slow food movement has since evolved into a comprehensive approach to food that recognizes strong connections between plate, planet, people, politics, and culture. Today, this movement involves thousands of projects and millions of people in more than 160 countries worldwide. Join us 
for a dialogue between Slow Foods founder Carlo Petrini and locavore activist Alice Waters as they reflect on the evolution of the food movement and all things slow. Friday, October 3rd from 1130 to 230. You can go to our website and click on the link on the right-hand side of the page to RSVP. We can't wait to see you there. Hi, we are back um, here on A Taste of the Past, and we've been talking about colonial drinks. And my next guest has taken it even a step further. I said we were going to to investigate a drink that has been having a renaissance of its own, and delicious with or without alcohol, it's a shrub. And my guest is Michael Deitch, who has just written a book called Shrubs, an old-fashioned drink for modern times. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. Uh, you know, I... I I have been just so intrigued learning about all these drinks, and some of them haven't made it uh, to this present day. Maybe for better, <laughs> better or worse, it's like the whistle belly vengeance or you know, right. flips you don't find too common. But shrubs. Now, tell me, what? Where did shrubs come from? Shrubs originated in Persia and the Middle East in roughly the Middle Ages. I'm going to say probably around. I, I, I don't know how far back they go. I know that records of them go back to about the 1500s, 1600s. And they began as a uh, as sherbet, what was called sherbet then. Um, the Arabic word was uh, uh, sharbat, which uh, became sherbet over time. And But not sherbet like we know it, like the frozen concoction, frozen ice cream type. It was the predecessor of Mm -hmm. sherbet as we know it. The story there is interesting. Sherbet started off as a way of preserving lemons uh, by drying drying the juice, making a a powder or a disc or a tablet, and flavoring that with sugar, um, violets, almonds, you know, other nuts, Mm. spices. And those that dried form would be uh, dropped into a into a bit of water to form a beverage. And think of it like an Alka Seltzer tablet, right? Or something, right? That's the general principle. A tastier yes, one, <laughs> right? 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 And then eventually, that that beverage of of fruit and sugar and um, spices and, and other flavors, once that finally moved into Northern Europe, um, about. 200 or so years later, people got the idea of taking that and chilling it down with snow or ice or whatever they could get. And you had this very, this very icy concoction. And eventually somebody decided, well, why don't we just, why don't we just make it this way at the beginning, Mm -hmm. which is how sherbet the beverage became sherbet the frozen concoction that we think of today. Interesting. How it became shrub is, is a slightly different story, of course. Shrub entered because the sherbets that people were drinking in Persia and Turkey and Egypt and uh, other other parts of that area were sampled by European travelers, merchants, diplomats, doctors, people who were going to the Middle East on business, and they began to really enjoy it as a refreshing drink. And so it came into Europe through mercantile routes. It, it first landed in Venice in about 
the 1600s, and then it spread through to Europe, and it was it came in as as sherbet, as that beverage, that fruity lemony beverage, but then it became doused with rum and. The reasons for that are still a little vague. There's a story uh, that I don't put much credence behind, which was that people were smuggling rum and to avoid the, the, the cops, essentially, they would sink barrels of rum or brandy into the water off the, off the shores of, of Cornwall. And when it came up, it was laced with salt water and it didn't taste very good. And so they would put shrub into it to make it taste better. That seems to be a, a, a myth, an urban legend. Um, but the rum in the early days, rum and brandy in the 1617-1800s was pretty gross. Not what we think of today. Not the smooth sipping stuff that we have now. It was it was rich. It was funky, but it was sometimes very metallic, or it it tasted sulfurous, or it just didn't taste good. So people would would add something like shrub. To make it taste better, mm-hmm. and so, uh, so that's the, the original shrubs were rum based, and then rum or brandy, and then in the colonial era, uh, those those shrubs came to the the United States and were enjoyed in taverns and by uh, by drinkers um, for uh, probably about a two two hundred fifty years before they died out. Evolving in parallel to those was what we now know as a vinegar-based shrub. They were originally raspberry vinegars, but not true vinegars the way we think of today, where you take raspberries, you press the juice, you ferment that into wine, then you re-ferment the wine into vinegar. The original raspberry quote-unquote vinegars were simply raspberry-flavored vinegars. Mm. You would take vinegar, you would flavor it with raspberry and a little sugar, and then you would have raspberry vinegar. Which you can still find on the market today, masking as a a raspberry vinegar. Right, right. right. Uh, But those took on the name shrub in about the mid-1800s just the instant, it just just as as another example of one thing appropriating the name of another thing. Hmm. So early colonists would have been the shrubs that they would have been drinking um, would have been not citrus based, obviously, but they would have been more of the like maybe some bad wine vinegar shrubs. Or the, there was some of that. Uh, there were some citrus based shrubs being imported into the into the colonies. Hmm. Um, uh, so citrus was not easy to to come by in, right, you know, in the, right. that time. But right, right. Uh, but but there were some being brought in on naval vessels because it was a, an antiscorbutic. It was preventing right. scurvy on on these ships. And so, in fact, shrub was one of the first things that the British Navy used to fight scurvy, um, with or without the alcohol. With or without the alcohol. <laughs> right. um, but um, so the the vinegar version ar- arose, I think, as a as a, a means of frugality. Uh, mm-hmm. So people could extend the life of their fruit by by preserving it with vinegar and with sugar and so it was like it was an early preservative it was an early uh it was like a jam or jelly except you drank it instead of storing it well much like we heard the uh, my previous guest corinne talking about you know pres- a way of preserving the the apple harvest right? exactly so everything right. is a means to i mean nobody wasted anything exactly right? yeah. exactly and if you didn't use it it would go to waste and you would lose it and so uh, it, it 
this was a way to preserve it and, and keep it fresh, fresh-ish. Yeah, interesting. You know, um, you mentioned that it's a um, an old an old fashioned drink from modern times. And did it? So many of these drinks have just sort of disappeared completely from our records and from our our tavern, our, our modern day taverns. But um, shrub or a variation, maybe people don't refer to it as a shrub, but bartenders certainly are using a lot of concoctions, you know, vinegar bases and and flavors that recreate what is in effect a shrub and now shrubs have a place again so did the shrub completely disappear from american drinking habits almost almost shrub was a preservative it was a way of preserving fruit and either citrus or later berries or stone fruit what the reason it almost disappeared was uh we got we we developed refrigeration. We developed canning, modern canning technologies, modern freezing technologies. And once you could freeze your fruit, or can it, or uh, refrigerate it, you didn't need to douse it with vinegar and sugar to preserve it. And no alcohol. How boring, right? Well, <laughs> at, prohibition put an end to the sort of boozy, uh, the rum-based uh, citrusy shrubs, um, and. The rise of products like Coca-Cola put an end to the need for having a soft drink like uh, sh- like the original sherbet, the mm-hmm. Persian sherbets, and, and colonial shrubs. What kept it from not disappearing entirely was that the Pennsylvania Dutch seemed to have preserved it. There mm-hmm. are cookbooks throughout the 20th century, Pennsylvania Dutch cookbooks, that maintain the shrub tradition. And... In late 1980s, there was a Pennsylvania farmer named David Tate who had a a bumper crop of of raspberries one year. And he he ordinarily froze them and sold them during the winter. He had too many for that purpose. He made raspberry vinegars out of them. He had too many for that purpose. He had to figure something out to do with them, otherwise they would go to waste. And a friend of his who was familiar with Pennsylvania Dutch cooking suggested – a shrub, and so David made shrubs, and his his farm Tate Farm continues to make them. They were one of the first commercial; they were the first commercial producer of shrubs in in the United States, and they've been making them since about nineteen eighty eight. So, so they're bottled and and sold and and where I've never I've never they're in seen Pennsylvania, them, and only in Pennsylvania. They're in right. Pennsylvania. They have a broader distribution now because they have become so popular mm-hmm. with with bartenders and mixologists and home bartenders and stuff. And um, and then they were discovered by uh, a columnist for the Wall Street Journal in, uh, like, 2006. He was in Pennsylvania at a friend's barbecue, and his friend offered him a shrub-based drink, and he found it so delightfully refreshing that he wrote about it for the journal. And it... This this guy's column was followed. He was a cocktail columnist, mm-hmm. and bartenders and and cocktail writers followed him pretty avidly because he was a very smart writer. And he he basically kickstarted this modern trend. I, I believe that that Eric Felton uh, for the Journal kickstarted this modern trend of shrubs in cocktails at cocktail bars because people saw this. What shrubs give a cocktail is they give the cocktail a bit of structure. The acidity gives the cocktail a bit of structure, and and 
interest that you don't necessarily get from citrus. Yeah. Citrus citrus based cocktails can be a little one note at times. If you've got uh, a shrub in a cocktail, you've got the vinegar in there, but you've also got the fruit. And so you, you've got a little bit more more to play with, a little bit more flavor profile to work with. Well, you mentioned in your book, and, and as did our, our previous guest, that shrubs were enjoyed as a refreshing drink. And you just mentioned that vinegary, that ref, that tang, that, that refreshing vinegar, you know, lilt on the tongue. I mean, I'm sure that really quenches your thirst better than a sugary cloying soft drink it it right it does it does there's an acidity to to it that stimulates salivation so you your palate feels refreshed if you if you've got a dry mouth you take a bit of shrub you're or it's same it's the same effect of drinking lemonade on a hot day if you're drinking a tart lemonade on a hot day that's very refreshing and a shrub is refreshing in the same way Mm. well um i want to get into recipes because in this book you have Beautiful recipes. As I told Michael, um, his recipes were looked good enough to eat, even though they <laughs> okay. were drinks. But, um, but speaking of recipes, you you mentioned in that the first time a recipe appeared in writing that we know of for in America for shrub or in Europe for shrub was um, early on, like seventeen in the seventeen thirties. I have one from seventeen thirty seven. I think there are earlier ones that I haven't been able to to track down in mm-hmm. my research. But it, it, there's a, there was a book called The Complete Family Piece. It, the author was anonymous. The The book was a sort of family economy book, how to tra- trap game, how to hunt, how to how to skin what you caught, uh, and just just how to how to live in a hard scrabble existence in the 1730s in colonial America, and. Uh, there's a recipe for shrub that's in there, but it's a brandy-based shrub. It's uh, brandy, lemons, nutmeg, white wine, and sugar. Early, like I said, early recipes are those early 1700, you know, 18th century recipes are mostly still the uh, the uh, the brandy or the rum-based mm-hmm. recipes. So, but yet the rest of the formula sounds pretty much the same. Right. Um, so let's talk about alcohol in shrubs. What today? What is the um, or would you consider to be the preferred alcoholic base of well it's not the base it's the add to but the preferred alcohol in the in the mix shrubs are versatile you and and it depends on the it depends on the the flavor of the the fruit or vegetable that you're putting into the shrub so you can pair a fig and cinnamon shrub for example with whiskey with rum those would work very well those flavors yeah, heavier, work together heavier, fruit heavier flavor, yeah. right but if you've got a lighter shrub, I've got a recipe for a carrot shrub. That would work well with gin. It would work well mm. with vodka. You know, tomato-based shrubs obviously are a perfect component for a Bloody Mary. I've got a tomatillo shrub that would also work in a Bloody Mary, but in a slightly different direction. Well, now, tomatillos and tomatoes being used in shrubs, are right, they're high in acid anyway. Right. So do you still add more like a vinegar base or something else to, to bring up the acidity? Or? I still use vinegar, but I temper it with a little bit more sugar, and I pull the vinegar down a little bit. Okay. I dial it back a little bit. Let's talk about the vinegars. Let's talk about vinegar. Uh, vinegars in drinks, apple vinegar, um, apple cider vinegar, or white wine vinegar. What what's what's going on here? Or, or, or bad wine, just bad wine. <laughs> right, right. Well, as Corinne mentioned, 
alcohol was used in uh, in colonial times and even all the way back into uh, the, the time of the Romans and probably further back to sterilize water and make it palatable and drinkable and something that's not going to kill you. And so you have drinks like Posca that the, the Romans, Roman centurions used. There's a reference to it even in the Gospels when Jesus is on the cross and one of the centurions offers him some vinegar. Modern food historians think that was probably Posca. It was just a mix of vinegar and water. And it was, it was offered to him to quench his thirst. And so... Vinegar in in drinks has a very long history. We think of drinking vinegar today as something unusual, but we've been doing it as a people for probably eight eight nine thousand years. You know, ever since wine was invented, there was vinegar, and so it, it's a natural byproduct of human culture because you have wine you drink that your wine goes bad you don't want to throw it away, so you drink the vinegar. Once again, no waste. Right, right no waste, and so. In terms of modern drink making, in terms of making shrubs now, I tend to pair the vinegar with the the flavors of the, the, the thing that I'm shrubbing. So apple cider vinegar is pretty versatile. You can use it with a lot of things. Mm-hmm. You can use it with peaches. You can use it with berries. You can use it with tomatoes, tomatillos. Uh, but you then you, you know, with delicate flavors of peaches and other stone fruit, you can also use things like white wine vinegar. It really depends on the flavor profile you're going for. Mm. It's very versatile. So you don't feel the need. I don't feel the need to be prescriptive about it and say only use this kind of cider, this kind of vinegar with this kind of fruit. Uh, I do think that there are certain vinegars that would overwhelm certain fruit flavors. You know, I, uh, um, but you know, and then there are other flavors that that marry well together that you might think of. You could make a lime shrub with a coconut vinegar, for example, mm. and that would taste oh, really, really yeah. delicious. Yeah. Well, you're as I said before, the recipes in this book are are beautiful and delectable, and and I can't wait to try some of them. And some are quite interesting and unusual. You've already mentioned the tomato and the tomatillo. Now, that's you know, one wouldn't think of that. Rhubarb and peppercorns. I thought that was quite interesting. That is the the use of spice in herbs and spices in shrub appears to be a modern uh, bartending culinary invention. Well, except in 1737, they did use some some nutmeg and oh, that's something, true. right? That's yeah. true, right? But but maybe not some of the other, um, not some of the like peppers and like that little bit of a, that heat and bite, you know. I think in Persian, in the Persian sherbets, you saw some of that. Mm. The the spices that were available to them, they would have used in these tablets. But in terms of what the, you know, in terms of the recipes that I was looking at from the 1800s, 1850s, 1860s, I wasn't seeing anything like that. So today people are using things like lavender with blueberries, balsamic vinegar with strawberries, um, peppercorns with strawberries or rhubarb. And what pe- what bartenders are doing is they're thinking about the flavors that work in the kitchen. They're looking at what the the, their, the chefs at their, their restaurants are doing, and they're they're coming up with similar flavor combinations. And and then too, then you can take that and you can think about flavor combinations that work in a cocktail. So I have a beet shrub that I pair with acavit. 
because the caraway in the Akavit always pairs well with beets. So it, it's just a sort of nat- it, to me it just felt like a natural flavor combination to put those two things together and come up with a cocktail that it was greater than the sum of its parts, mm. if, if you will. Well, if you don't know what to do with your bumper crop of figs, beets, carrots, or tomatillos, this is the book for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and there are many more than that, and in, and a lot of the very more. Uh, commonly found recipes too and the citrus the citrus combinations are delightful i have to say i mean that would be i would drink that any time of day without the alcohol i mean they're they're absolutely beautiful well michael thank you so much for sharing all this information i think it's it's um very interesting how uh, we've carried some traditions on through the years and uh and keeping a little bit sticking to our past and keeping with the colonial drinks. Well, thank you for your time. Right. Again, you've been listening to A Taste of the Past about colonial drinks, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>